This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, with massive amounts of military equipment going to Ukraine, some fear U.S. inventories are getting too low. We'll break down what that means for American munitions and weapons stockpiles. Then, natural disasters left behind more than $165 billion in damage last year. That's according to a new report from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And it's been a rough start to the new year for travelers after Southwest Airlines canceled thousands of flights and the FAA was recently forced to shut down U.S. airspace. An aviation expert explains why these issues are becoming more common and the changes the industry can make to fix the problem. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The U.S. has provided over $24 billion in security assistance to Ukraine since Russia's invasion. But inventories of ammunition and key systems are running low. We'll discuss the problem and potential solutions with Mark Kansian. He's a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mark, welcome back to the program. You write that the shortage of 155 millimeter uh, ammunition is the most serious and could become a crisis. Why is that? It's the most serious because the war has devolved into an artillery duel. Uh, the front lines are stable. Uh, the two sides are expending a lot of artillery am ammunition. Uh, and the Ukrainians have a lot of Soviet-era equipment and artillery, but it's very hard to get ammunition for that. So they've been bringing on uh, NATO standard equipment, which is 155 millimeter. But even that is short. The United States has sent a million rounds to Ukraine, but it's now getting short itself. It's asking allies to do more. But even with the increases in uh, ammunition production, it's probably still only going to cover about a quarter of Ukraine's usage. So what would an ammunition shortage crisis mean for the United States? Well, for the Ukrainians, it will mean that they have to ration art artillery and shoot only at the highest priority targets until uh, the West can ramp up its artillery production. For the United States, it's meant that we've had to acquire ammunition from other countries uh, and to encourage them uh, to increase their production. We've hit a point now where the United States and the Pentagon aren't comfortable with uh, sending more ammunition because that will cut into what we need for our own war plans. So right now it hasn't impacted American readiness? Not yet, no. But we've hit the point where we can't really send more and it's now going to affect Ukrainian war fighting. The U.S. has stopped sending Javelin uh, missiles to Ukraine because the inventory is, is, is too low. Is that shortage harming the United States at all? It, it isn't, but again, we've hit the point where the Pentagon is not comfortable sending any more. We're ramping up production of Javelin, and there are alternatives. The United States is sending, for example, the tow anti-tank weapon to U Ukraine and has many of those available. So we can send alternatives to Ukraine, but we can't send any more Javelins. So what's the situation with HIMARS? Ukraine is saying that they want more. The U.S. is reluctant to send more. What's going on? The problem with HIMARS is, is just that we don't have very many systems. Most of the systems that are uh, available are with units. We've sent all the spare HIMARS that we can, uh, so there just isn't uh, much more to send. We're sending a few of the track versions, as are some of our allies, but the problem is just availability. 
does the Defense Department have the authority and the budget to ramp up production of these things that are, are, are running low? Um, are they able to do that? Are they able to tell the, the producers produce more and quicker than, than typical? They are, and Congress has been very supportive here. They've given DOD the authority it needs to procure more munitions and to do multi-year procurement. It's given the DOD money. Uh, the problem is just time. Uh, even if the United States goes to a, a defense industry, it will take them several years to increase production and then several more years to increase the rate of production. It's a question of time. You, you mentioned before that the U.S. is leaning in a bit on um, allies to send uh, some of the things that we're not able to send. Is that working? Who are those allies that are actually sending that, that equipment? The United States has been leaning on allies since the very beginning, uh, and that's had some effect. They've, they've sent about a third of the total uh, um, supplies that have gone to uh, Ukraine. Uh, the problem is they don't have very much either. Uh, their stocks are low. They're, they've never stocked a lot of uh, ammunition, so there's a limit to what they can do. So how long is some of this going to take to really replenish, to get to the, back to the point where we were before the, the Russian invasion? It depends on the system. For most systems, uh, our inventories are adequate and the production is adequate. There are some key systems, like we talked about the 155 millimeter uh, ammunition and some of the uh, missiles. For some of those, like Javelin, it'll probably take four to six years, even if we ramp up production. How, you write that the U.S. can take on more risk by um, reducing inventories even more. But how low is too low before it harms the... Uh, the Americans' ability to respond to crises. And that's where we are now. The Pentagon's very reluctant uh, to send more of some of these key items. Uh, we could take some uh, weapons, for example, from late deploying reserve units is a downside in that that makes their training harder, but the risk is might, might be manageable. We could uh, cut some of our other uh, munitions inventories and take some more uh, risk there. Uh, so there are some things that could be done, but the risk starts getting higher. Well, what other things can the Pentagon do to alleviate this problem? What we're seeing is that the, the Pentagon is providing alternatives and substitutes. For example, instead of 155 millimeter howitzers and ammunition, they're sending 105, which is lighter. It doesn't have the impact and doesn't have the range of projectiles, but it still can be very effective. It's sending a few of the track vehicles, but there aren't very many of those. But substitutions is probably what you're going to see more of. And you mentioned that Congress has been supportive. Um, now that the House is under GOP control, are you um, assuming that there might be any changes to that support? I think for the military support, that looks pretty solid. There's a bipartisan consensus to uh, provide that to Ukraine. The two places where I think you're going to see Republican Congress weigh in is one is uh, economic aid to the Ukrainian government. I think there's some reluctance uh, there among many Republicans. The other thing is oversight. I think you're going to see more uh, formal oversight, although the last uh, appropriations bill did contain $27 million to increase oversight. All right. Well, Mark, it's always good to see you. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me on the show. Coming next, the cost of natural disasters and climate events is going up every year. A climatologist at NOAA joins us to explain why that is and which areas are being hardest hit. In 2022, the U.S. experienced 18 weather or climate events that caused at least a billion dollars in damage. In total, the price tag is over $165 billion. 
according to a recent report from NOAA. That's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Adam Smith is an applied climatologist and economist at NOAA. Adam, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So what types of weather disasters did we experience in 2022? 2022 had not only a high count, but a high diversity of um, weather and climate disasters. So from the drought and heat wave in the western and central part of the country to the hurricanes that impacted Florida, um, to the floods in eastern Kentucky, to the winter storm event and the cold wave that happened across much of the country around Christmas time, even the wildfire season out west, not, not as bad as recent years, but still uh, several billion dollars of damage and hail, tornado, and high wind events, thunderstorm type events across much of the country. So in total, 18 events and $165 billion. So it was quite an active year. So which weather events were the costliest last year? The costliest events last year would be Hurricane Ian uh, that impacted Florida with you know, storm surge, high wind, and uh, heavy rain and flooding well inland, over $100 billion, third, the third most costly hurricane on record in the United States. Um, but the second most costly event may surprise people is actually the drought and heat wave across the western and central parts of the country from reduced hydropower in the west to reduced commerce along the Mississippi River due to low water levels to agricultural impacts and livestock impacts. That was $22.2 billion, the most costly drought in a decade. So why are weather events becoming more expensive? Is it simply that they're more severe? It's a combination of factors. So we have more exposure to population assets in harm's way. Uh, that would be the wildland urban interface in the west or the river floodplains or, of course, the coasts where people like to live. So we have high exposure, high vulnerability as well. So how we build, where we build, uh, lack of building codes plays into that. But of course, climate change is supercharging many of these different extremes that may lead to billion dollar disasters, for example. In the west, the mega drought leads to longer wildfire seasons. In the east, we have a warmer atmosphere. It holds more water vapor. We've had more urban uh, flooding events and river basin flooding events in recent years. And um, in hurricane impacts, we've had in five out of the last six years, category four or category five hurricanes impact the United States, which is the highest frequency on record dating back to 1851. And Adam, you know, it's not just about money. These disasters cost lives, too. So how deadly was 2022? Yes, 2022 was uh, the eighth most deadly year dating back to 1980 at 474 fatalities. In fact, we're working with CDC to make sure our heat numbers are capturing all the heat related deaths because sometimes there's data latency. So. You know, there, there's just so many extremes across so many different parts of the countries that takes lives and livelihoods. So we need to learn from these extremes, best practices and implement uh, better standards so we can mitigate future damages because we know these extremes will continue as we move into the future. And, and what historically, what are the trends that you're seeing besides that they keep getting uh, deadlier and more expensive? So the United States not only has the highest count of these billion dollar weather and climate related disasters, all inflation adjusted to present day dollars, highest highest amount than any other country in the world, because again, the exposure the vulnerability and the influence of climate change. But we also have the highest diversity of these different types of extremes. So no matter what part of the country you live in, you likely have a combination of hazards you should be aware of and, and understand what's happened in the past, because it could of course happen again in the future. So we want to, to plan 
uh, and harden our, our infrastructure to have a stronger, um, more resilient future ahead of us. And your report only measures weather events that cost more than $1 billion. So why is that? And what goes into determining cost? Is it is it the cost mm -hmm. to rebuild? So yes, so these billion dollar disasters um, account for about 80 to 85% of the full cost distribution for all weather and climate events across the United States. So it's a, it's a useful metric, even though it's a bit arbitrary. Uh, in fact, we even inflate sub-billion dollar events into present day dollars and add those to the time series that often have happened in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s earlier when, um, due to inflation uh, expenses. Uh, but as far as the assets, yeah, damage to homes, businesses, um, government buildings like schools, uh, the contents of these structures, time element losses like business interruption, uh, damage to agriculture, infrastructure, roads, levees, systems, electrical grids, even military bases, um, wildfires, uh, wildfire fighting suppression costs. There are 15 or 16 different asset classes that account for total direct losses. That would be insured and uninsured losses, but we also cannot account for things like the physical and mental health care related costs with disasters or environmental degradation costs that are non-market losses. And finally, the supply chain ripple effects outside of a disaster region, we also do not account for that. So this is a conservative baseline. So that's what I was going to say. This $165 billion is probably pretty low. Yeah, depending on how you would account for it. Um, it would be a conservative baseline. In fact, the winter storm cold wave event that happened around Christmas time was, was quite an impactful event, taking lives and costing billions of damage. We haven't even added that to the 165 billion because we're still calculating it. So the, the, the cost figure for 2022 will actually continue to rise a bit. And is that your, uh, I mean, quickly, your, your prediction for 2023? Is that, that we're, it's just gonna get worse? Well, so five of the last six years, uh, 2017 through 2022, with the exception 2019, we've been over $100 billion. And in, in eight consecutive years, we've had 10 or more of these billion-dollar disaster events. So the trends are going in the wrong direction. And for 2023, I would expect uh, something similar, unfortunately. All right, Adam, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Coming next, flight cancellations are becoming more common. We discuss why that is and what can be done to reverse the trend. We'll be right back. On January 11th, all U.S. flights were grounded after an FAA database outage. It's the first time U.S. airspace has been shut down since 9-11. And the travel nightmare comes just weeks after Southwest Airlines canceled thousands of flights due to weather and staffing. William J. McGee is the Senior Fellow for Aviation at the American Economic Liberties Project. Bill, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me on. Can you give us some details on what caused that recent FAA database outage? Yes, uh, it, what, what it affected was a system called NOTAMS. Uh, and, and what that is, is that's notice to uh, everyone that works in aviation, pilots, dispatchers, et cetera. It can, it can, it's a critical system that's, uh, that affects safety. And uh, it failed during the uh, midnight hours, thankfully during the midnight hours. If it had failed at four o'clock in the afternoon, it would have been a, a much worse uh, situation. But it, it really points out how brittle our systems are, and it points out also how um, the Federal Aviation Administration, which operates the NOTAM system and operates the nation's air traffic control network, has been underfunded and understaffed for that matter 
uh, not for years, but for decades. Uh, and that goes across multiple administrations, both parties. We have a real crisis with the FAA. It just year in and year out when the budgets are set, there are not enough FAA safety inspectors. There's not enough money and, and care being put into uh, the IT systems. And uh, with air traffic control, we've been for more than 20 years now trying to upgrade the system so that it matches other countries with satellite-based technology. And, and, and Bill, we're not but fully before, there we, yet. We, before we talk about the technology, I want to go back to what you said about being underfunded. Why do you think that is, I mean, given how important air traffic control is, obviously, to safety and to the economy, um, given that, you know, as you said, there's not enough money for IT upgrades for, for more air traffic controllers? It's a great question. And I've been uh, around this industry for a long time. I started working in the airlines in 1985. I'm an FAA licensed aircraft dispatcher. I worked for airlines dispatching flights and interacting with air traffic control. Um, we have not had enough safety inspectors. As, we, as was made painfully clear with the Boeing 737 MAX uh, incident. We, have no, we do not have enough safety inspectors to visit all the airlines and visit all the, the maintenance repair stations. And this is something that year in and year out. It, politically, is it not sexy enough to put you know, more money in the budget for something like this? Also, I think there's a mindset that luckily the, the, the safety record has been very good lately and knock wood, let's hope it stays that way. But I think, you know, there's a there's a there's a sense of resting on the laurels and saying, well, there hasn't been a problem. So therefore, things must be working. That's not how a safety net works. And when you when you talk to real safety experts, they'll tell you, you have to make investments to ensure that we keep up the safety record that we have. You know, in a recent article, you write that the U.S. badly needs to use the next generation air transportation system. What is it and how is it different from the current system we have right now? Sure. In many nations in the world, they've made a full transition to uh, satellite-based technology. We have this sort of piecemeal system of technologies, in some cases satellite-based, in some cases it's still ground-based as it was many years ago. Um, the bottom line is NextGen has been kicking around for about 20 years now, and we just haven't gotten everything together on the funding. Look, there's no one in the industry, in government or in the airlines or, or anyone that knows anything about aviation that doesn't think it's the right thing to go fully to next gen. It's for safety, for efficiency, for cost savings. It makes all the sense in the world. But where the problem has come is who's going to pay for it. And the airlines are going to have to do their part as well because they have to invest in technology on board their aircraft to, to upgrade to satellite-based systems. And uh, in the past, they have balked at that. And uh, airlines are obviously going to not want increased costs to themselves. They're not going to want increased regulation. So what's the solution, Bill? Well, the bottom line is this is just way too critical to the entire country, as you said. I mean, look, we, we are on the hook as taxpayers whenever there's a problem with the airline industry. The airlines received a $54 billion bailout during COVID. That was the most of any industry. And when the when the executives came to Congress asking for that money, they we agree with what they said. They said that, um, you know, they're intrinsic to the nation's economy and security. Well, if that's the case, then let's not be constantly uh, socializing the losses and privatizing the profits. We all need a stake in this. That's why at American Economic Liberties Project, we're recommending that something called federal preemption be eliminated. I was just going to ask you about that. What does that mean? 
Sure, it's an arcane rule that came in in 1978 when the airline industry was deregulated by President Carter. And basically it says that only Congress and the DOT will have oversight of the airline industry. But what we've seen, and this was made clear by the Southwest event during the holidays, the largest single airline meltdown in history, the DOT has been an extremely ineffective regulator, not just currently under Secretary Buttigieg, but going back multiple secretaries, decades in fact. The DOT has not cracked down on the airlines. They've allowed them to get away with awful behavior, sitting on $10 billion of refunds for years, not, uh, not addressing this crisis with airline flight cancellations, scheduling flights they can't operate. We're saying if the DOT is not going to be an effective regulator, and it hasn't been, then we need to allow state courts, state attorneys general, state legislatures to step in and do what the DOT isn't. And when as, you an, say, as an American citizen, you have fewer rights dealing with an airline than you do with virtually any other industry. But you when can't you say, Bill, the, 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 yep. the Department of Transportation needs to crack down on airlines, what does that look like? What do you mean crack down? What do they need to do? Sure. We had a crisis. Senator Markey said that in 2020 there was $10 billion in refunds not paid by airlines. By far the worst offender was United Airlines, which had more than 10,000 complaints filed with the DOT. It was clear in 2020 airlines were not paying refunds. What did the DOT do? It took almost three years for an investigation, and then they fined Frontier and five smaller foreign airlines. All of those airlines deserve to be fined, but there was no punishment whatsoever for the largest offenders, for United, American, Delta, Southwest. This is not effective oversight of this industry. All right, the airlines no. know they can get away with it, and they do. And we're out of time. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for our email list on the homepage. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites, and these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.